But yeah, by and large, I think, you know, due to the influence of uh, mass media, due to the stigma that's so often associated with Appalachian English, I think it is dying out at a very quick rate. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. Appalachia Meets World, we're back, it's Will. And Neil, what up? Neil, how's it going? How was the big vacation? Hey man, vacation life is the best life, right? I'm still on vacation. Apparently. Yeah, so I don't know if uh, our listeners know, but I'm via via island life tonight, talking talking from the southern Appalachia, what I like to call it. <laughs> Very southern, huh? Yeah, you, you should see this place. It's like beach everywhere and mountains everywhere. It's basically Appalachia with a beach. Nice. And one more very important detail. You know I like chickens. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. I think everybody Every, knows that at this point. They're everywhere on the island, dude. <laughs> everywhere. Just really wild, wild chickens. Yes. Wild chickens and donkeys, man. It's awesome. I love it. Oh, that's all good. kinds of all kinds of wildlife. Can you here. smuggle one back? Can you can you add to your I don't collection? Know. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. I'm trying to figure out a way to get get one on the plane. <laughs> oh, I have so I have tried to catch a few while I've been here because you know my vast experience with catching them. Yeah, uh, you know they're pretty quick down here in the south. <laughs> Speaking of the south, I wanted to point out real quick. The Appalachian FBS went 11 and 5 this past weekend. It's a pretty good weekend for the Appalachian college football teams. Yes, sir. I got my rankings out. I saw your rankings. I questioned some of your rankings. I will, I will it, say that. Um, the rankings are changing this week. Don't worry. Rank, rankings, I hope, hopefully, will definitely change. Plus, you had App State behind Marshall, and, and they beat Marshall the week before. So, yeah, uh, well, you know, it's just a. From the heart, yeah, you know, you gotta go with the heart on on week one. All right, we'll 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 try to get those posted. We still don't have the website up, but we're working on it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And speaking of your trip there, how do people speak there? Did they they uh make fun of your dialect, or or could you could you correspond? Could they understand you? Yeah, yeah, you know, it takes some time, but uh, they always ask me, "What's that?" What's that? Oh, oh, okay. So, but it makes for interesting conversation, as as we've always said. You know, be who you are. Doesn't matter where you are. Exactly. Uh, it's always fun to hear hear the reaction you get when you first speak. And yeah, I definitely I definitely get reaction. But there's a lot of there's a lot of people from the south that that have kind of migrated down here. So it's not as bad as you would think. Yeah wonder what some of those islanders think of you when they hear your accent do they automatically think appalachian and and think of the american stereotypes that we have or is it different on the island i kind of for the true locals they don't really they don't really know where appalachia is so right. they haven't really left here uh or you know this area much but for people that have migrated down here that's instantly like oh where are you from in the mountains it's not where are you from. It's where are you from in the mountains. So they immediately the know. Mountain. Yeah. Well, no, they immediately know based on the way I'm talking 
right. and I'm from somewhere in the mountains or in the south. That's funny. But I got on a boat yesterday for a for a tour of the islands, and uh, the first question I, I always ask is, "Hey, hey, man, where are you from?" Oh well, you know I'm I'm I went to school at Ole Miss. I'm like, oh okay. <laughs> so the, the guy that took me all around the islands is uh, hello Appalachian. Been, yeah, exactly, exactly. Very cool. The reason why I asked because of the person that we have on the episode tonight, Jennifer Heinmiller, who who is the co-author of the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English. You got to be uh, well studied to understand all the Appalachian English. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I think she put in a lot of time putting this dictionary together. We'll ask her about it and just see how much time she has put in, how, how much dedication she has put in to produce the history of Appalachian English. And speaking yeah, of that, do you, you have any favorite Appalachian words? I think y'all is uh, pretty classic, and I'm pretty sure it's Appalachian. You know, but we'll ask that question. Yeah, I, you know, I have T-shirts that say y'all, and I, I represent y'all, but and y'all is Appalachian, but y'all Southern too. Yeah, I true. feel like we should have our own word, like like Yuns. Yuns is definitely Appalachian. Yuns is Appalachian, and Yuns means the exact same thing as y'all. So maybe uh-huh. we should just get our own shirts that say Yuns. This is a shout out to my boy Jeremiah Akers from Pikeville, Kentucky, who who really, the first time I ever met him, uh, was in college. We played college football together. <laughs> he said, hey, Yuns, what's up? We knew where I was from. <laughs> I'm telling you, that should be our new T-shirt, our new slogan, <laughs> Yuns. I love that word. Yeah. There's a number yeah, of I words that I like. Do you say finger? Finger licking. Finger licking. <laughs> I love finger. I love fixing. I use fixing all the time. I use yonder. I use reckon. Do you say, we, we say Coke where we're from. Yeah, we don't say pop. Who says pop? Right. Or dope. Some people say dope. I think one of my favorite words is britches. I love britches. <laughs> Greg, get your britches tied up, boy. It'll be a long night. <laughs> We've had some guests on that have said some good, you know, getting above your raisins. I know Yancey, mm-hmm. Yancey used that. Dr. Turner used God willing and the creeks don't rise. I love that. I mm-hmm. love that saying too. We, we've yeah. had some good, good guests that use Appalachian English. And I can't say that I use it in my everyday, but there are some words, like I said, wrecking yeah. britches, can't. I use crick. I, I, I know I use it in my everyday. Do you think you don't use it in your everyday? Because I, I do. I guess I just don't notice. I think other people notice. Yeah, my my everyday definitely consists of some Appalachian speak. Like I'll say taters. I'll say maters for sure. Mm-hmm. Have you ever used the word? Have you ever? <laughs> Peckerwood? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. you <laughs> you. That's that. That's Appalachian English. That's what you call me my whole life. <laughs> it really means really so. woodpecker, but I think we use it in a different context. I, I think you. I think you used it in very different context. <laughs> it, Thought it was my know, middle name till middle school. Even though a lot of the, you know, as soon as we talk, like, like you said, maybe people from the island don't know, but people in the U.S. As soon as we talk and find out where we're from, we're automatically thought of as inferior 
automatically mm-hmm. thought of as backwards as hillbilly. But but truth be told, Appalachian English is a dialect. It's an accent. It's a different way of saying things. It's not inferior. It's not improper. It's not uneducated. That's the way they talked in the 1700s. It has its own rules. It's a legitimate dialect. You know Absolutely. what I mean? We've talked about this many times, you know, it's, you know, for me now, right now I'm, you know, on an island and they have a dialect. They, they speak English, but it's, it's a different dialect. You know, I spent a month in, in Chile a long time ago. And even though I knew Spanish, I, I didn't know Spanish in that dialect. So it took, took a while for me to pick up on the local Spanish dialect. So you know, it doesn't matter where you go anywhere in the world. There, there's a there's a certain dialect to the region that you're in, and Appalachia definitely has its dialect. Exactly, and we shouldn't be thought of as any less because of the dialect. We shouldn't be discriminated against. We shouldn't be, you know, have these stereotypes just because of the way that we talk. And we should be Absolutely. proud. I think we are. I think we we you know we kind of have a sense of identity, a sense of sense of pride, a sense of belonging that we talk this way in our region you know absolutely i'm looking forward to to hearing what jennifer has to say about uh more specific english in the appalachian world yeah i am too so why don't we just go ahead and and get her on here sounds good welcome to the show on this episode, we have Jennifer Heinmiller. She is a linguist, an analyst for a tech company, and more importantly for this episode, a lexicographer, where she is the co-author of the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show. We, we greatly appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. And before we get started, you just want to explain to people what a lexicographer is? <laughs> sure. Essentially, it's someone who writes and compiles and edits dictionaries. Perfect. And that's, you know, that's definitely why we want to have you on the show. We find this book so fascinating and so great for the region. It brings up so, so much nostalgia for me, but um, we will get into that in a little bit. But first, we want to kick it off. We want to ask you a question that we ask all our guests. Our family, we're big on tradition, as most Appalachians. And a tradition we have over the holidays, we have appetizers. We usually have more appetizers at the holidays than the actual meal. And so we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or a holiday dish? Appetizer, holiday dish. Well, my mind goes right to orange cinnamon rolls when I think of holidays. It's a Christmas morning staple in my family. Nice. Does it have a topping on top? Yeah, I do a little glaze with a little vanilla and oh yeah, put a little maple with the cinnamon filling. Oh, it just, yeah, it screams holidays to me. And I wouldn't say it's it's exactly Appalachian, but it's my own special recipe. And so I guess by extension, it is Appalachian since that's where I am. Close enough. If it tastes good, it's Appalachian. Oh, it does. Trust me. <laughs> and speaking of that, I notice you do say Appalach. Uh, is oh, that... of course. I say it the right way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We were going to get into that. Appalachia, Appalachia. Is that phonetically written in the in the dictionary? It is. Yeah, we have a whole entry about it. 
Um, and this is definitely something, as you know, it marks, you know, one of us from one of them. <laughs> um, although, you know, it should be noted that uh, Appalachia, like as a term, it wasn't really in widespread usage until the 1960s uh, when President Johnson started using it, um, talking about the war on poverty. Uh, and then later on, of course, you know, Appalachian became kind of the uh, the favorite pronunciation, I think, in large part due to the famous hiking trail. That's so so interesting. You know, obviously, I've, I've always grown up just saying Latcha. I probably ne- didn't know any other way until I went to college <laughs> and heard other people <laughs> pronounce it. Just a little bit about the dictionary. I know it was originally published as the Dictionary of Smoky Mountain English. Can you talk a little bit about the history of the current public publication, the history of the past publication, and and just why it's so important for the region? Sure. Uh, You're right. Yeah, it started out as the Dictionary of Smoky Mountain English, um, and I was not involved in that project. That was before my time. That was uh, compiled by Joseph Hall and Michael Montgomery. Uh, Michael Montgomery was my co-author. He sadly passed away in 2019. But really, the backbone of that project came from Joseph Hall's research. Now, when he and Michael started working on the first edition of the dictionary, he was already, I believe, in his 80s or 90s. And he was a young man in the 1920s and 30s. He was a grad student uh, at Columbia University uh, in the 1930s uh, when the government started doing you know, all these different projects. And he got tapped to go and do some research in Appalachia in Great Smoke, well, what would become Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So the government was looking for people to document the language and culture of the region because they had designs to basically run everybody out and build this national park. Uh, But they thought, you know, maybe they would go ahead and uh, do something nice and preserve a little bit of the culture and language before they did that. Um, (laughs) So so Hall was tapped to do part of that. um, And he just completely fell in love with the region. He was a California boy uh, and was just so charmed by the area. Uh, He filled up, I think, four field notebooks, just, you know, writing everything down by hand that first summer. And then he came back, I think, the following year or two years later. And he did a full-blown research project. I think he was there for nine months. He had this audio recording equipment, you know, these huge machines in the 1930s. I don't know how he dragged them all over the mountains, but he did. And yeah, he was there on several trips in the 30s. And then I assume World War II threw a crimp in his plans. Uh, He didn't come back until the 50s and 60s. He did end up writing his dissertation uh, for his PhD on the phonetics of Smoky Mountain speech. Um, And that became the basis for the grammar and syntax section in in our dictionary. Um, And he also compiled this enormous glossary, sort of a bare bones approach um, to what we put together, um, just with hundreds of words that he picked up and recorded during his field work there. Um, And then Michael, he did his uh, doctoral work in the late 70s through the early 80s, I believe, 1981, I want to say. And he was studying the language of East Tennessee uh, in particular. And he got hooked up with uh, Joseph Hall through that. And a little bit later on, I, I want to say in the early 90s, he decided he wanted to do a big project. And so he had the idea of taking all of Joseph Hall's work and really bulking it out into a proper historical dictionary Uh, basing it on the principles of the Oxford English Dictionary. You know, you have your term, you have a definition, and then you have this beautiful paragraph of all these examples of how the word is used and how it has been used over the years. 
Um, so that's essentially the structure of the dictionary. So the two of them worked on that. And uh, Joseph Hall, unfortunately, passed away before it was published. And then almost immediately after its publication, <laughs> Michael, uh, being the ambitious guy that he was, he already knew he wanted to do a second edition. So he started on that work almost immediately, then brought me on in 2008 uh, when I was a first year grad student at the University of South Carolina and started teaching me a little bit about it and kind of, you know, assessing what type of linguist I was. And uh, by 2012, he named me co-author. Yeah, we just, we really bulked out the materials. So um, for this new edition, we really expanded the scope. Uh, so we broadened the region that we were looking at outside of just the Smoky Mountains region um, to encompass all of Southern Appalachia. We used a lot of new, new to us resources, such as um, some oral history projects that had been undertaken by students uh, in the 70s, uh, newer books, uh, all sorts of Civil War letters, went through hundreds of those. Yeah, and I, I think we've put together a more uh, encompassing volume this time around. That, that, that's so incredible just to hear kind of the backstory of how the research was done. You know, this is not your typical Webster's Dictionary, right? Does it have the historical meaning behind all the words in the book? Is that is that written into the dictionary as well? As much as we were able, yes. So you'll see after the entry, so after we have the lovely paragraph of examples, um, you might see a label where it tells you it came from, you know, Scots or something, or we have this dating back to the OED. Um, their earliest recorded usage is like, you know, the 1400s of this, you know, such and such form or if it's something from, say, German or, or anything else, or Cherokee, uh, we have some of those in there. We try to label it accordingly. But yeah, we did try to go into the history of a lot of these words and break it down, you know, uh, morpheme by morpheme or, you know, each component of the word. So how were you able or how did you, I guess, identify Southern words or separate Southern words from Appalachian words? Because in Appalachia, sometimes I feel like we're considered the stepchild of the South. You know, <laughs> we, we kind of are, are we Southern? Are we not Southern? No one really knows, but we are Appalachian. So how did you separate Appalachian words from Southern words? That's a great question. And I, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, Personally, as a linguist, I kind of view Appalachian English as a, a flavor of Southern American English. Uh, but, you know, not all Southerners would agree. <laughs> so right. it can be pretty subjective. And, you know, it's important to note that Southern American English or, or any uh, language or language variety exists on a continuum. While we do have words that are only found in, you know, one tiny place or region, a lot of them bleed over, um, and we have terms that are used in Appalachia that are also used elsewhere and vice versa. I think some of the things that make Appalachia unique is, um, you know, just the geographic boundaries with the mountains, right? It was, you know, not easy access. And you did have communities that were a little more self-sufficient. You might have had some other influences there um, from Native Americans, some of the different immigrant groups. Um, and then you also have things like plant life that didn't exist outside the region. We have a lot, a lot of flora terms in the dictionary, which I thought was fun. Um, and then you also have things that were very specific to industries that really became subcultures in the region, like logging and mining. 
we've had guests on in the past that have talked about Appalachia not necessarily being as isolated as people think because there's this blended culture of Native Americans, of African-Americans, of Scots-Irish, of different people from European descent. It's just this blend of cultures. And I imagine the words are the same. Yeah, it it really depends um, on which culture, but you're exactly right. I mean, it's very much a blend. Um, And you have, you know, you have all sorts of communities through the mountains and uh, the demographics can be uh, different. We typically think of it as like kind of Northern Ireland, uh, Scotch-Irish, if you will, uh, descendants, typically. And there is a lot of that. And there's a lot of that influence, uh, definitely. Um, I'm actually friends with someone from Northern Ireland and we're we're kind of discussing a project uh, tracing the language flow from that region into Appalachia, as well as the culture and music uh, and some other things. Then you have other groups as well, as you said, um, African-American. You have the instance of the Coe Ridge uh, settlement, which was largely African-American, made up of freed slaves and, and their descendants for a while. And a lot of Native Americans were there as well. Um, And then you have other influences, um, like something that I was surprised about, the term uh, Belsnickel is or was pretty, pretty prominent in the Shenandoah Valley, which is, you know, within our scope, which sounds incredibly German to me. And it is. And for anybody who doesn't know what Belsnickeling is, because I certainly didn't know. I do not. (laughs) It's it's a kind of Christmas tradition where people dress up. (laughs) <laughs> as what looks to me like kind of a, a raggedy homeless version of Santa Claus uh, <laughs> goes around with a big switch and he has some furs and they'll go around and almost do like Christmas caroling and they'll stop at houses and people will give them cakes or, or, you know, drinks or whatever. That's, that's kind of the later iteration of it. But earlier, like in the 1800s, when they did this, they would go into houses and they would throw candy on the floor uh, and if the kids jumped at the candy too quickly, in their opinion, they would kind of, you know, give the kids a whack with the switch bring, they bring carried. Bring out the switch? <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is kind of the opposite of Christmas. But uh, anyway, uh, goes back to Germany. <laughs> it's a very eclectic region, more so than people would think at first glance. That's so neat. And so with this book, you know, you can... You know, it's not one of these books that you read from beginning to end. You can go throughout and read some of the history of the words, which I, I find very, very fascinating. And, and just how many words are included in the dictionary? This is a really this is a massive book. I think it weighs like 12 pounds, right? It does weigh 12 pounds. <laughs> yeah. How yep. many words are, are actually in the dictionary? Well, I can give you a total word count, which is just over 1.3 million. It was a massive file on my computer. (laughs) As far as the number of head words, I can't be sure, but it's it's way up in the thousands. There's a lot of material. And like you said, you know, it's not something that you sit down and read cover to cover, but uh, we tried to make it fun. You know, you can flip to any page and find things like Bell's nickel, which is how, you know, I came across it. <laughs> like, Very cool. Yeah. What, so speaking of words, do you have, since you did, since you did all the research, do you have maybe your top five favorite words of the book? I know that's like telling um, asking you to pick your favorite child, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot to choose from. I have a lot yeah. of children in this yeah. book. <laughs> right. Do you have your top five? I can, yeah, I can give you some of my favorites. Um, I think the first one that comes to mind, I love the word circumvenjimus, which just means 
taking the long way around, uh, you know, taking totally unnecessary twists and turns to get to either your destination or the point of the story, uh, which, you know, as uh, Appalachians, we love. (laughs) (laughs) I would say stack cake intrigues me. Um, And I've talked about this before in my own podcast. I have not encountered a real stack cake and I would love to. It sounds wonderful. And I'd love to see one of these huge ones that they talk about. You have never had a stack cake? I have never had a stack cake. Oh, I am you're just... missing out. We've, we've, oh, talked, no. we've talked about stack cake several times on, on a few episodes. Oh, um, no. <laughs> and they're very time intensive. It's a process yeah. to make a stack cake. Um, but, oh, yeah, it's definitely worth it in the end. You should definitely well, we, put your hands on a stack cake. <laughs> I will make that my goal for this holiday season. We have a, a long entry on it, and there's even some directions how to make it. And it definitely sounds time consuming, but worth it. <laughs> um, I think, uh, well, Bell Snickle, like I mentioned earlier, I'd say that's one of them. It's a good one. Uh, cat Head Biscuit, because who doesn't love a good, fluffy, giant biscuit as big as a cat's head? And I'm also a cat fan. <laughs> so. <laughs> And then I would say uh, maybe something like molasses pull or like one of the terms along those lines, like so molasses pull was an event kind of like, you know, a corn shucking or a quilting uh, where people in the community got together and they boiled down the sorghum to make molasses. Uh, and at the end, uh, they would take kind of the last remaining bit of molasses and boil it for an extra long time. And then the kids would take it and they would stretch it out and just pull it until it got, you know, hard and really brittle. And then they would break it into a million little pieces and make candy. And it just sounds like it must have been just a really nice, wholesome, delightful party. (laughs) Also tasty. (laughs) (laughs) Those are great choices. You keep coming back to food. (laughs) I do. You know, the food words in this book, I think we we got a bunch of good ones in there. (laughs) Through your research and as you see words kind of transform whether it be through culture or just over time in Appalachia it's one of the reasons why this dictionary was published or the importance of it do you feel like some of these some of this language or some of these words are being lost over time especially with the newer generation is this a way to get back to some of the way we used to speak do you feel like any of these words or any of this language is being lost Yes. In a word, yes. Um, It is definitely um, a severely endangered language variety. When I was in grad school, that was uh, my focus of research was endangered languages and uh, looking at revitalization efforts, if that's what the speech community chose, um, you know, depending on the variety or the language. I don't know if I would go so far as to say most, but possibly uh, most of the terms in this dictionary are out of common usage in Appalachia as a whole. You know, you do have older speakers who still use a lot of these terms. Um, You have some of it preserved in media. But yeah, by and large, I think, you know, due to the influence of uh, mass media, due to the stigma that's so often associated with Appalachian English, I think it is dying out at a very quick rate. And I don't see that many efforts of, you know, people in the speech community of wanting to, you know, pass it on to their children, Um, which is, it's pretty sad because you have a lot of these things that are being lost. You know, on a serious note, that's one of the reasons I do gravitate to some of these uh, food terms 
because when we lose those terms, we lose those recipes. And, you know, by extension, we lose that culture. Uh, molasses boil, it's essentially a food, but it's also a social event and a family event and a staple of the fall season. And they just don't do it anymore. So, yes, uh, in publishing this dictionary, this was one of my personal goals was to at least create a record of these terms and this knowledge and this culture so that, you know, people can flip through it and they can say, oh, I remember my grandma talking about that. Or, you know, in 50 years, somebody uh, at University of North Carolina, Asheville, they pull it off the shelf and they're like, huh, so that's how they used to live in this area. Even if those terms are long forgotten, I wanted to create that record. Yeah, yeah that's that's so refreshing to, to hear you say that because I think I may have mentioned this before, but one of my favorite Tyler, you know who Tyler Childers is, right? Yes. Yeah. Fantastic musician. He's from Eastern Kentucky, which is where my brother and I are from. So one of my favorite songs of his is called All Yorn. And I don't know if (laughs) Yorn is in your dictionary, but while I may not use Yorn in my everyday speech, it's one of my favorite songs because that word is just so relatable. It's just so nostalgic to me. It brings me back to memories of when I was a youth, when I would say the word and people would tell me, you're not supposed to use that word. Well, you, you know, I, I just love hearing it. I love hearing that song because it brings them back to the way we used to live, to the way the region used to be. And, and is that one way that we can pass on these words or keep this language is through music? Have, have you seen that? You said media, but have you seen it through music as well? Absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of the other side of the media coin. You know, you have the mass media where the language is kind of assimilating to this very standardized version. But then you do have people who are doing this uh, kind of, you know, Americana, Appalachia, newgrass music, which I I think is fantastic. And it is being perpetuated that way. Um, And yarn, I mean, that's just such a fantastic word. It is in the dictionary. (laughs) Um, And we actually have, I think there are two senses for it in the dictionary. And our examples go back to the 1840s. So I can't wait for you to take a look at that. Um, Yeah, that's such a rich entry. We also have, you know, Hizen and Hearn. But yeah, more to your your question. Um, Music is definitely one of the primary ways that I see language preserved, um, whether it's Appalachian English or other language varieties um, in completely different languages. Um, It's not ideal because the terms kind of get fixed in these phrases um, and they're not, it's not really a natural form of using them, but it does keep it there. And it, again, it creates a great record of it. And I think if that's your best option, because the speech community and outsiders aren't really, you know, making active efforts to keep it alive in day to day life, I think music is the next best option. And it's just it's such a beautiful way to preserve it. I would 100 percent agree with that. You know, you mentioned the, the unfortunate perceptions of, of Appalachia. And I don't know if the word code switching is in the dictionary. But, you know, code switching is, you know, when you change your language or change the way you speak just because of your audience, which which would also be a way of not saying yorn or not saying his or hern. You know, to that point, it's due in large part because of the perceptions of Southern Appalachia. You know, we started this podcast essentially to dispel some of those misconceptions of the region. And ironically, as soon as we open our mouth, those <laughs> those perceptions are brought right back to the front of mind to everyone who hears us. So I guess my question is, 
as a linguist, why do you think these perceptions persist in Appalachia in the language? And, and oftentimes when people hear us talk or when they hear different dialects, Appalachian English is usually kind of ranked towards the bottom. And we've spoken about this on one of our podcasts before. Do you, do you have any reasons of why that might be or um, how that came about? My personal perception, I, I haven't looked into this in an academic sense, but, you know, as a Southerner, I don't identify myself as an Appalachian, although I've lived in Appalachia for three years and my family has roots in East Tennessee. So I spent a good chunk of my childhood there, um, but I'm, I'm native to coastal Carolina. And there's a little bit of a stigma with, you know, with any Southern variety, um, but Appalachia in particular, I think a lot of it is the association with poverty, um, the association with, I think, industries that are kind of looked down on, um, especially coal mining, logging to a lesser extent, as that's those operations aren't nearly as large a scale as they used to be, at least not around places like Asheville, not in the same way that coal mining has persisted. Yeah, as far as intellect, it's that's a tough one. It's really a tough one. Uh, and it gets into a lot of like the language and power discussion, you know, who has power, who doesn't. Yeah. And, you know, Appalachia has never really been a seat of, of power within the United States. I think that's a big part of it. So, you know, even from the beginning, the people who were in positions of power, they were not from the region. They didn't really speak that way. I mean, you did have people like Davy Crockett, but um, I think, you know, we were such the minority that's kind of persisted. And it has all these other layers now that have perpetuated that, sadly. I feel like society has deemed it kind of okay to essentially correct our language or to act like the way we speak is not the right way to speak, to make us feel inferior. Do you feel like this dictionary kind of, in a way, can give us that sense of pride back for some of this language that we have preserved over time or some of the ways that we do speak? To, just to show people that we're not inferior just because we use these words. These wor words are just a dialect. They're not something to make us feel ashamed or something to make us feel bad about ourselves. Yes, absolutely. That was certainly one of my primary goals in, you know, bringing this to publication. It's, you know, and it's not just a dialect. I would argue that our dialect is richer than a lot of dialects because we do have so much history and culture baked in. Mm -hmm. It's very unique. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I, I totally understand what you mean. I, I was the same, uh, even even though, you know, my accent is not and was not Appalachian. I had a very heavy Southern accent when I was a child and I moved from coastal North Carolina to Ohio. And I remember consciously killing my accent because I got made fun of even by kids. This It's so baked into, you know, mainstream American culture that, you know, Southern accents and Appalachia in particular is less intelligent. It's been a nice change of pace uh, since I came back south about 10 years ago. My accent has worked its way back into my speech, especially when I get tired. My family laughs at me. They say the more tired I get, the twangier I become. <laughs> yeah, the more I get around my family, the twangier I become for sure. Oh, yes. <laughs> you obviously just said that, you, you know, you're not originally from the region. Through your research, did anything surprise you about the region or surprise you about some of the words? Um, yeah, you know, thinking of a few examples here, one of the things that surprised me, I guess a lot of people know, um, but just 
maybe more from a researcher point of view, because I love to geek out on uh, yeah, just about anything sciencey. I was really surprised when I started researching that there are so many plant varieties that are native to Appalachia that you don't find anywhere else, um, except in some cases, you'll see them here and then you'll see them in like South Korea and Japan. Oh, wow. It's, yeah, it's really interesting. I guess it has to do with the way, you know, plate tectonics. And I, I don't know that part of it, uh, but like ginseng, for example, and it's such a big part of the culture here. I mean, you know, you drive outside the Asheville city limits and up into the mountains and you see handmade poster board signs that say, I will buy your ginseng and people yeah, go out cool. collecting it. And it's, yeah, it's I fascinating. Used to, I used to hunt bloodroot when I was little. Blood, yeah, bloodroot's another one. And I could never find ginseng. I was terrible at ginseng. That's where the money is, though, apparently. <laughs> it, yeah, I have heard that. And you'll see signs everywhere, like, do not steal my ginseng. And, yeah. you know, you have a whole bunch of words, you know, relating to that. You have sang, sang in, in the dictionary. And, yeah, a lot of related words like that. It just kind of opened my eyes to all of these worlds within worlds in Appalachia. That's very cool. And you also, you mentioned earlier, briefly, I don't know if people caught it, but you have your own podca podcast. It's called Appalachian Words. And for anyone listening, you should definitely check it out. It's really cool. You go through, I don't know if you necessarily go through the dictionary, but you go through a set of words on every episode. And, yeah. And explain where they come from and kind of explain what they are. But how has that podcast been received? Have you had a lot of listeners? Are they listeners just from the region? Or are they listeners from outside of the region? Are people curious about our language and the way that we speak? Yeah, um, right. So as you mentioned, it's called Appalachian Words. I'm on a bit of a hiatus right now. I just had to take a little break. And then quite honestly, this year, I've fallen in love with trail running. So most of my free time has been running on these uh, mountain trails. Uh, but I do want to get back to it. And yes, it has been received very positively. I've received so many emails from people all around the world. Uh, I have listeners from more than 20 countries, which just blew my mind. Like when I saw that there were people in Africa listening to it, it just blew my mind. It's amazing just to hear Appalachian words. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, well, hey, maybe there's a future for this language, or at least we can get some appreciation for it. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I've had a lot of discussions. People uh, have really opened up to me uh, about their own perceptions of the language and asked me just various questions about my opinion of, you know, the social situations, political situations in the region. And or they'll ask me about have I heard such and such term or have I heard of such and such tradition? They'll share their personal stories with me. And it's just, it's really a lovely experience. Anytime I get an email like that. That's really cool. One uh, question we ask all our guests, and I think it's apropos for this episode. When I say this word, what comes to mind? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the word Appalachian? Mountains. I am a total outdoor nerd, <laughs> so I think of driving out on the Blue Ridge Parkway and parking at a, a random uh, overlook and hopping on whatever trail branches off from it and just going and exploring. Very cool. Do you have a do you have a favorite town around Asheville that you liked it? Like I know Cashiers is really cool. There are a lot of little yeah. spots within within that region. Do you have your favorite? I really enjoy going up to Hot Springs. Um, it's a funky little town right on the river. Um, 
cool little cafes, great outfitter up there. Um, yeah, and the drive up there is a lot of fun on those twisty mountain roads. So this is another question that we ask everyone. You obviously have already alluded to the fact that you aren't originally from the region, but I would consider you Appalachian. But where? Well, thank you. I take that as a compliment. <laughs> where do you call home and what makes it home for you? What makes it unique for you? Ah, you know, this is such a tough question. I've moved so many times in my life. I mean, you know, right now my home, my home is uh, Asheville and there's a lot about Asheville that does feel like home. The mountains for one and, uh, you know, falling in love with trail running and, and a lot of outdoor pursuits here. Um, so it's close to my heart in that way. Columbia, South Carolina would be my second home, I think lived there for probably the longest stretch of any place I've lived. And I just, I love that uh, atmosphere there. The wild card, I'd say probably my third home uh, is Japan. I've spent a lot of time in Japan and uh, I live my life bilingually, um, which, you know, goes to show in Appalachia, you just never know who you're going to run into or what languages. Uh, Answer this for me. I'm always curious when I know people that are bilingual, what do you dream in? Do you dream in Appalachian? <laughs> Do you dream in I, Japanese? <laughs> I would say uh, all three, Appalachian, really? Standard American, and Japanese, depending. <laughs> Never know so, what's going to pop up. <laughs> so what is there another, what, what, what's in the future for the dictionary? Are you, do you have plans of publishing another one or are you looking for, at an electronic version or what, what's next for the dictionary? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Uh, reception has been really good uh, for the first printing. So I'm hoping we'll go into a second printing soon. Um, and beyond that, uh, I'm, I definitely have an electronic version in mind. Um, and when I say that, I mean like an interactive uh, web-based version, um, something like, you know, like the big dictionary websites. Uh, but this would hopefully be a little more fun and colorful and um, we have a lot of audio files that I would love to incorporate so people could really hear it. You know, it's one thing to see it on the page, but to really experience it, you got to hear it. So yeah, I would neat. love to do that. It's a beaut- It's a really a beautiful book. If, if people, if the listeners have seen it, they should definitely check it out. Go get it. Purchase a copy. And speaking of that, where, where can they find the dictionary if they wanted to purchase a copy? It's a great holiday gift. It's a great gift in general, um, but but it's just I think it's a must-have for anyone in the region or for anyone out of the region that is that is interested in the Appalachian language. Where can they find the dictionary? You can get it uh, a number of places. You can get it directly from University of North Carolina Press through their website. Uh, occasionally, they'll run sales, so you can uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, otherwise, it's on Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon a few other, you know, big booksellers. So it's, it's definitely out there in multiple places. And um, I also have some uh, book plates. So if any of your listeners want to buy a copy and they want an autographed book plate, I'd be happy to send them out if they want to send me a note. That's cool. And, and where can they send that? Um, I will give you the address. And then if you want to put it in the show notes to, you know, or, you know, to whoever says that they ordered a copy. Yeah, we'll definitely put it in the show notes. I feel like if we just opened it up right now, I could spend hours and hours just talking about words with you. I just find it so fascinating. And we're so appreciative that you took the time to be on the show tonight. And we feel honored that you would take that time. And, and it's just an amazing piece of work that you've put together. 
Well, thank you so much. And yeah, anytime you want to flip through the dictionary and talk language, uh, give me a holler. I'd be happy to, to chat with you again. All right. You need to get that Appalachian Words podcast back up and running. <laughs> Will do. Will do. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Well, Will, uh, once again, like a sponge, all education for me, baby. Even <laughs> though a lot of familiarity, still an education. All education. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we can literally say on this episode it was a wealth of knowledge. Because, I mean, if we pick up that dictionary, it's going to be a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, a lot of things that, of course, we recognized, but still just uh, put in a very elegant way, I guess. Yeah, I love when she said cat head biscuit. Yeah, it's like, that's how mama makes them. <laughs> and we talked to her offline. I know she didn't mention during the episode, but she really worked on this for 13 years to put this dictionary out. And just, the, just that amount of time, that amount of dedication to the region, to the people. You know, I commend her for all that she's done. It's awesome for the region, awesome for our dialect, our language, to preserve it, to uh, look at the history, to look at how important it is for us, for the region. And I just uh, want to thank her for you know, all the work that she did. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. It does bring me to my next point to you, though, our uh, of place segment. So of place, you're going I, right into it tonight, huh? Yeah, exactly, man, because I know there's lots of things running through both of our minds. So I, I just had to had to catch you with uh, tonight's episode of uh, of place. So what you got in store for me? You know, while, while we were talking to Jennifer, there was something that kept kept coming back to me, kept going through my mind, and we never brought the word up. She never mentioned the word. I know it's in the dictionary, and it's the word wash. And you know as well as I do, our grandmother on, on her mom's side, she was a you know very proper, I guess you should say, could say, but. She never, you know, we had a granny tea on our dad's side, but the grandmother on our mom's side, you know how she was. She would never let us call her anything except grandmother. She thought mm -hmm. that was the proper way. Address even, though, even though her husband, we called him Papaw. You know, we called her yep. grandmother. And I think it was because it's what she wanted to be called. And we always thought of her as proper until she would say the word wash and she would <laughs> she would always say wash and, and it was something that none, none none of the rest of us ever said like that we always said wash and she would always say wash and she had like, several other words that like that too and i remember always just laughing when she would say wash we would get her to say it over and over and now that i think back though i kind of regret laughing i mean it's the true dialect. It's the true Appalachian English. And a lot of people spoke that way. And it wasn't wrong. It didn't make her any less. It was just the way that she she said the word. You know what I mean? And it just made me think back, uh, gave me a little bit of nostalgia, think, thinking back to how, how she talked, how she was. It's just a dialect. It's not like I said before, before the episode episode um it's not improper it's not uneducated you know it has legitimate rules it's a dialect it's not just some slang so we should say wash we should say tore up we should say reckon britches can't crick we should say them with pride i mean 
Appalachians, I think we pride ourselves on having a sense of belonging, on having this cultural pride. I think when we're around other people, we use these words even more just to show where we're from, to be proud of where we're from. And I think this dictionary, um, what Jennifer has co-authored, what she has put together, it can give us that sense of pride. If you have it, if you get it, put it on your coffee table. Let people see it. Don't let it collect dust on your shelf. Be proud of it. Be proud of who you are. Keep saying these words and keep them in everyday speech because they're not wrong. They're not inferior. They're who we are and they're who we should be. Amen. We should have known a long time ago when our very distinguished grandmother <laughs> used the word wash that it was proper and correct. Exactly. <laughs> I promise there was never a more eloquent woman than our grandmother. So yeah, that that's awesome, man. That well, just as soon as you said it, as soon as you went there, I just started chuckling because it just it brought up that memory of us just forcing her to say it just so we could laugh. Um, but it was so wrong. We we shouldn't have. We, we probably should have just joined in with her and washed our clothes. <laughs> exactly. That's the whole point. Got a ruined exactly. shirt, you need to wash it. That's right. Be I'm who you that are, man. shirt, me and you are going to be the first one to rock it. Yeah, I think we need to add Yun's uh, as a slogan of our uh, first Appalachian Meets World merch. There you go. <laughs> All right, man. Another great episode. Another really good episode. Very interesting. Very fascinating. I appreciated Jennifer's time and that her willingness to, to speak to us about this work that she's put together. If anyone hasn't, I know we talked about it on the show, but go go get the dictionary and get your hands on one and, and be proud of the words that we have and use them regularly. Make sure you reach out to us on all the social platforms. Let us know if you like this episode. Let us know if you have any other suggestions. Uh, we appreciate all of our listeners. Yeah, and if you have suggestions, you know, you can send it via email, AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. Wherever you listen to the podcast, recommend us. Give us five stars if you like it. Uh, it just kind of boosts podcasts. And I guess I'll just say, like I usually do, till next time. Peace. getting thin now I'm facing down with a grin I've been in the city too long sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains